Well, we are talking about Jesus showing up on the scene of history and how if you don't understand who God is and if you don't understand what men and women are and if you especially don't understand what sin is, then you cannot begin to comprehend the God-man that takes away the sins of the world. You have in your hands right now God's self-revelation. It's how He wants to make Himself known. It's what He invites every person to inquire about Him and to see the truth that He has unfolded for us to plainly know. And here's the amazing thing. It's in black and white. In our country, it is very easy and accessible. You can even get it online. You don't even have to buy one anymore. That's how easy it is to get the knowledge of God in our hearts. With that, let's turn to Isaiah 40. And here's the reason why we are going here first. What we've looked at so far is that Jesus just isn't any person. And that is best solidified by the lineage that is put forward about Him. His family tree is actually recorded twice in the Scriptures. One, from His earthly father's side. And the other from his birth mother's side. And what you find is, is he has two significant parties of which his bloodline runs through. It runs through Abraham, of which God made unconditional promises to. The fact that he would receive a land, that they would have offspring, and that they would be a blessing to the entire world. And then you have the line run through one who was selected by God in order to be the king of Israel. Meaning that as the line runs through that, he is royal. He deserves to rule. He has the right. Now with the introduction of the Romans and their dominant power, they have started to set up yes-men as kings. And so kind of all that uh, who rightfully should have the throne has just been kind of dusted back in the background. However, Matthew cared enough to record it for us. And so did Dr. Luke. Now let me ask you this. When you have the opportunity to describe Jesus to somebody, how do you describe Him? What do you say about Him? Let me ask this. What do people tell you about Him? Is anybody talking to anybody about Jesus? Okay, we are. So what's going on? What are they saying about Him? He's a good man. That's a good man. Okay, it's a prophet. What does it mean that he's a prophet? Does that mean that he was able to incur some revenue? Not that kind of prophet, is it? No. What's it mean to be a prophet? What's that? Foretell the future. So he's got his tarot cards and his crystal ball. Is that what you're talking about? Can you, can you see how odd it would be if you talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus? And let's not kid ourselves anymore. We do not live in a Christian nation. You have got to start with God, and you've got to start with creation, because people don't understand Jesus. They hear the name Jesus, maybe one of their friends talked about it sometime, or they saw something weird on the internet, and they just file him along the rest of the files in their mind about people that they might possibly know something about. To them, Jesus might not be any different than a guy named Michael Jackson that they're still not for sure who that was. Because so many years have passed since his death. You see what I'm saying? It's just one figure 
in history. So when we say he's a prophet, what in the world does it mean? What's that? Bunch of guys got together and wrote a book, and he's just a character in the book. I'm not going to say that's wrong, right? Because God got together with Jesus, and Jesus got together with the Holy Spirit, and he said, hey, let's write about Jesus. I like it. See, notice, you don't have to go, nuh-uh! <laughs> you can say, yeah, and then you can show them exactly what that is. Prophet. Someone that speaks for God. So that's a pretty hefty title. What else do people say about who Jesus is? When, when you talk to them about who Jesus is, what's that? Savior, why? Because he died for sins. Does that still tally up for the lost mind? What do you think? For the person that doesn't know Jesus. It might not. Because we've been convinced in this world, I'm a pretty good person. Right? I mean, I, don't, I haven't killed anybody. I try to keep my oil changed. You know, my friend over there needs a fishing lure. I'll throw him something. He can come dig in my wormhole. I don't care. Right? Pretty good people. Generous. Kind. Is that the truth? No. So Savior. Still needs some context to it. What else? He's the Son of God. Wow. It's a big one, which, which leads me, I'm the lost guy in the room, I need to get saved today, that's, that's, you can take that however you want, thank you Tom, I'll smack that beard right off your face, oh wait, um, <laughs> if he's the son of God, well, who's God's wife? Some people tell you it's Mary. Is it Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons? Anybody ever seen that cartoon that they put out? It's the Mormons. Anybody ever seen the cartoon they put out? Nobody? It actually talks about how did Jesus get here? And it shows Mary kind of waiting in the house, and then here comes God walking down the road. And he goes, knocks on the door and it opens, and Mary kind of leans her head out and she has these doe eyes, and then the door closes. And then the next scene starts talking about how Jesus and Satan are actually brothers. Didn't know that, did you? Yeah. That's what we call in theology, whack. <laughs> That's whack. <laughs> That's what we call. That's a theological term for it. It is derived from the Greek term wackadoody. Um, but let me ask you this. Would you ever approach a person who talk about Jesus and say, well, he's the Messiah? Would you ever talk to someone who maybe didn't know him and use that phrase? Would you? We probably wouldn't, would we? Because for some reason, Messiah doesn't seem to have a weight in our culture. However, in Jewish culture, especially in the first century, when you have a Gentile dominant superpower over your entire existence... And everybody has to live. They're free to exercise or worship and do the thing. But let's be honest. If you've got somebody constantly lording over you all the time, there's a strand of anxiety that is going on throughout your entire culture. Now, thankfully, because we have such blessings of freedom, we've never experienced that. 
But what we have right now is a rare, rare situation in the history of the world. It's always somebody dominating somebody. Always somebody's got to conquer something. So this idea of Messiah, we would probably never result to that. Now here's the thing. Does anybody know what the word Messiah means? What's that? Savior? Well, no. Deliverer? No. Messenger? No. Somebody said it a minute ago. Anointed one. It is the anointed one of God. The Hebrew word for it is Mashiach. The Greek word for it is Christos, which you can guess what word do we use? Christ. So notice, anytime that you talk about Jesus Christ, you are actually stapling on the, the, the Greek contemporary idea at that time of Messiah to that. But here's the question. What in the world did it mean in Hebrew? If you have your notes, I want to show you a quote here. And it is, you got a little small uh, couple sentences there. You got one paragraph, and then you go down to the second paragraph. Notice the word Messiah is Mashiach in Hebrew and Christos in Greek. It means, and here's the quotation, anointed one. Now watch this. And the idea of a Messiah for Israel grows out of her ideology about a righteous what? Check this out now. A righteous king, one who would be like David. The Messiah as a figure is integrally involved in Israel's unique understanding of her place in history, their awareness from the beginning that God had chosen them to bring blessing to the nations. So Messiah means anointed one, but for the Jewish culture, it's got much heavier overtones because the thought process is immediately linked to someone who is going to rule righteously. It's the idea of not an imperfect government that is setting up all of these rules and regulations of which have infringed upon my prosperity. That's not the idea. The idea is that the Messiah, when he comes on the scene, he will rule in such a way to where it will liberate people to live without any fear and in complete unadulterated joy. Does everybody get that? So when we talk about the idea when Jesus claims to be the Messiah or that he is the Christ, in fact, uh, in Luke chapter 2, whenever the angel appears to the shepherds, right? They're watching their flocks by night, right? There's born to you today. I have glad tidings, right? Good news. There's born to you today in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ. We've all seen Linus say it, right? Who is Christ the Lord, or let me say it this way. He's born in Bethlehem, the Deliverer, the Messiah, the Master. That's what we're talking about. Baby. He is the rightful Deliverer, Master. He's the King. So sometimes when we come to this with our 21st century mindset, we forget what were Jews thinking at this time this was going on what does it mean when they're throwing around the word messiah and we see it translated as christ in our text do we put that together do we understand that it's not just the anointed one and not this that he had a rich family tree it's the idea that he has the right to come in and to sit down on the throne and everyone is to be in subjection to him like that 
See, here's the interesting thing. This is why there's a, a large number of Jews who don't believe today. A large number of Jews don't believe today because they have so, and rightfully so, put together the idea that when the Messiah comes, there will be a kingdom. When the Messiah comes, Messiah means he is the rightful king. And therefore, Jesus can't be the Messiah because he did not bring a kingdom with him. He died. And therefore, there's no kingdom on earth. That's their rationale. And this is why, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at what does it mean, kingdom, in the Scriptures. Because it is sorely misrepresented. In fact, one author said, whenever Jesus preaches about repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he's telling everybody they need to get saved. For some of you, that might sound correct. But I promise you, if we look at the details, it's not. So here's a question. What was the Jewish idea? What were some things that they would look like? In Isaiah 40, we get like some of the flavor of what, they, what the expectation was about the Messiah. What were some things that they could bank on? Because here's the reason why. When we talk about the idea of hope, H-O-P-E, when we talk about hope, we often use it today as, well, I hope it doesn't rain anymore so I can do this, right? I hope they're still running that sale at Kohl's so I can go take advantage of it. That's how we use the word hope. It is, it may happen but it might not that is not how the bible uses the word hope the hope is sure and certain and will happen but may not be occurring at this moment so when we talk about jesus being the hope of israel or that the jews are living in hope of the messiah coming it's because they know they have 39 books that have preached it to them over and over and over they know that there is a deliverer who is the anointed one who is the king who will sit rightfully on David's throne and who will rule righteously over them. This is what they bank it on. So here's just one example of how they would have come to this conclusion. Chapter 40, verse 3. And you'll be familiar with this. A voice is calling. Clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our Elohim. What does that sound like to you? Anybody know? John the Baptist, doesn't it? Now, here's the amazing thing, and we're going to see it. This verse is actually quoted, again, in Matthew. Does everybody see the intentional use? Clear the way for who? Who? Say his real name, Yahweh. Notice, clear the way for I am. When Matthew quotes this verse, does Matthew have any mental qualms about the fact that Jesus Christ is God? No, he equates them one and the same. There's not a problem there. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That is so important to grasp. So watch this. Clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Now watch this. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Notice the emphasis on his word. It says here, a voice says, call out. Then he answered, here's the question, what shall I call out? Here's the answer. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God 
of our Elohim stands how long? Forever. You can bank on it. You can take it to the bank. Notice I use that word two different ways. We have a class in September, hermeneutics. Now here's the thing, ladies. Think back to your wedding day. Did he look good? Did he? Probably had his hair slicked back. You're like, where did that come from? Pulled out a little Dapper Dan on the comb and just brushed it right on through. Had on a suit. You were definitely thinking, where did that come from, right? Making eyes at you. Taking your hand gently. Do you like that today? Ooh, don't answer that, right? All flesh is like grass. All beauty that it holds, it's gone. We're here and gone. We look great for a moment, then we're gone. But what transcends across all time? God's Word. See, this is, this is why these, these promises constitute hope for these people. They know God's Word doesn't fail. He always does what He says. It's always sure. It's always going to happen. I have no reason to think anything else because one reason, God said it. I may think I have lasting power and in my pride I would like to think I'm more than I am, but guess what? God's Word goes beyond that. Verse 9, get yourself up on a high mountain. Now watch this. Get yourself up on a high mountain. Some people call that a pulpit, right? Get yourself up on a high mountain. Here's what it says. O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your what? God. Now notice, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah has no problem communicating to the Jewish people that the idea of the Messiah showing up is God in the flesh, no problem. Does everybody see that? When he appears, that is our God. Here he is, and notice what he's doing. He's encouraging. Get up where everybody can hear you and call out and announce it. It is to be publicly shared. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. So notice he says here, Behold, verse 10, Adonai Yahweh. Does everybody see capital L, lower O-R-D? Notice, Adonai means master, right? Yahweh is his personal name. Adonai Yahweh will come with might. Any confusion that this is God in the flesh? None. Watch this. Behold, Adonai Yahweh will come with might and with his arm ruling for him. So notice, we have this idea of dominance. We have this idea of dominion that is going to be in place with the Messiah. Notice it says here, Behold, his reward is with him. If you want to write right there in your margin, Revelation 22, 12, that's a good place to go. And here is, the, here is the synonymous parallelism. Again, we have a class in September. And his recompense before him, his reward and his recompense. In other words, he is going to be dishing out to everyone because they have earned from him a reward is the idea. He will recompense to people. And if they've reaped bad or if they've, if they, yeah, if they've sown bad, they will reap the bad from that. He's coming in to settle accounts. He's coming in to, to lift up those who have been faithful. Verse 11, and here's amazing. It is a tender picture. Watch this. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. 
In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Everybody see God's heart in this verse. Does everybody see that God recognizes a need for somebody to get in there and to love people? Does everybody see that? Everybody see that the Messiah is a qualified person to do this? Yes, who's asleep? Okay, if you, if, you, if you go to sleep, we're going to start standing up and sitting down, standing up, sitting down. I know you don't want to go to that church, okay? Because if you could, you could, but you're not. So, moving on to Matthew. Matthew, turn over to Matthew. That gives you an idea, a very short, brief idea. There are many, 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 many other passages that would point you in the direction of giving more information about what they thought of the Messiah. But I want you to turn to Matthew 3. Everybody okay temperature wise? We good? Okay. Just want to make sure. If I told you I wasn't going to preach long today, would you believe me? Come on now. I need love too. All right. Chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, here's his message, watch it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's some things I want you to realize, and we've been talking about this in our Monday night class. Number one, the word repent means to change your mind. It literally means think differently. That's what it means. This idea of having remorse for sin or that you need to do something in order to get back in God's good graces, it is a Catholic idea. It is the idea of penance that whenever someone was translating this word from Greek into Latin, they messed up the translation. They added lots of baggage to it, and they have loaded it down with something that it does not mean. The Greek word means change your mind. Think differently. The Bible is very clear, and hopefully that will ease up a lot of things uh, about this. So notice, change your mind for, here's the explanation, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Two things. Does everybody notice that John the Baptist doesn't then sit down and write an entire commentary on what the kingdom of heaven is? Does anybody know why? The Jews knew. They've already got 39 books that have been pointing to that this whole time. In fact, the whole reason why we started this the first Sunday in June of last year was to build to the point that we would all have an understanding that there is a promised kingdom coming because there is a promised king that has been chosen by God to dispense the task of being the ruler of all things, and that is Christ the Lord. That's the reason why. So John doesn't need to explain it because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. They already get this idea. Whoa, you mean to tell me that the king is coming... And that everything is going to be made right? That's a message that a Jewish person would respond to. So notice what happens. It's at hand. It's at the door. Why is that? Because the king is getting ready to come on the scene. So notice what it says. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, here it is, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, John himself did not have a JCPenney card. He had a garment of camel's hair, 
and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Gluten-free guy? I don't know. The original guy to look to, right? Verse 5. Then Jerusalem, notice that, very particular, the city, Jerusalem, was going out to him in all Judea. Judea is the southern region of Israel down there. And all the district around the Jordan. Who's his audience, church? Jews. He's got something to say to the Jews that the Jews thoroughly understand and that the Jews are responding to in droves. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River and they confessed their sins. They were being dunked down like this and when they popped up, they started saying everything, every sin that came to their mind, getting it out in the open. Verbal confession. We all think we should do that. Let's get a tank in here. I'm sure we could have Laverne bring something in here. We'll just fill it up with water. Give everybody a number. What's that? We can go out back. I've told not to, I've been told not to mess with that thing. I don't know. Come up and what would you say? Hmm, interesting time. But think about it. What is John doing here? Anybody know? What is John doing? He just came to tell everybody that Jesus is coming. Why? What is his role so significant? It's talked about in the Old Testament. It's being brought up right here. His message is really clear. Make straight the paths of the Lord. He's baptizing people. It's a baptism of repentance. We don't do that today. They're obviously changing their mind about something. And when they come up, they are confessing sin. Hold on, church. Notice that repentance and confession of sin are two different things. Everybody see that? Okay. Because you wouldn't be confessing your sins unless you were changing your mind about the fact that it needed to happen. Everybody see that? Important. What is John doing? What's John's purpose? What's his ministry? He's a forerunner, yes. In fact, in the ancient times, a forerunner was somebody who went ahead of a king and he was trying to clear everything out so the path was all smooth to go. Oh, there's a pothole there. And he'd fill it in real quick so whenever the king came walking by, he wouldn't trip. So that's what he's doing. But why? Why? How would you feel if you came into church and it was separated here and we got one big long row here and then chairs are separated here and one big long row here you think you'd have a hard time getting to your seat you'd have to kind of get this going on wouldn't you because the path would not be straight for you what john is trying to do here is to relieve every obstacle out of the way so that when jesus shows up no one misses him why is that well isaiah 53 verse 2 verse we didn't read there was nothing about him that we should look on him. He didn't come with Vidal Sassoon hair and blue eyes. He didn't walk up and just kind of levitate next to a tree and go, hey there. That wasn't him. He's about five foot eight, probably had dreadlocks, brown skin. He probably did. He didn't wash his hair. He's like anybody else. Of course, when he spoke and told the storms to stop, they did. That'll get your attention. But as far as him personally, nothing. So John is calling these people, get junk out of the way, confess your sins, get rid of all this junk so that when he shows up, you won't miss him. Now, we have a conflict. This is actually not in your notes, but I want to touch on it. Verse 7. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, they came out. Let's see what's going on. We're out here to get baptized. Now stop. Are the Pharisees and Sadducees saved? They're not. In fact, we have nothing but problems with them. And here's the crazy thing about the Sadducees. They didn't believe in miracles. They did not believe in the supernatural. They were the naturalists of their days. But yet they're out here seeing what's going on. This weird guy wearing weird clothes, eating weird stuff, is doing weird things. We've got to see it. So when John looks out and he sees them approaching, look what he says. They're coming for baptism. He said, you brood of vipers. That's how to win people and influence others, right? That's doesn't seem like he took a leadership course in that one. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Everybody pay attention to the details. God's word does not waste a word, okay? And one of the biggest problems that we've gotten into in some of these radio preachers and things like that is they're just trying to give you a big idea about something and a helpful little Hallmark card in order to live your life until next Sunday when they can help you again instead of paying attention to the details and trying to put the pieces together. We need to be better Bible students than that. Who warned you to flee what? Hold on, stop. That means that when the kingdom comes, wrath comes with it. Does everybody see that? See, this isn't gentle Jesus out on a hillside somewhere, freshly mowed lawn and butterflies everywhere. That's not this Jesus. This is him coming as the rightful king of Israel, of which he has a herald announcing it and saying, you better get right with him. You better accept him when he shows up. You better believe him when he appears. Get your sin out of the way. Did they have to do that to be saved? No. It's a lot easier to respond to the Messiah when you don't have sin clouding your judgment in your eyes. Let me promise you that. So that when he shows up, you won't miss him. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, Therefore, watch this church, especially with the confusion over repentance, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Pause. Who's he talking to? No. Pharisees and Sadducees, they're Jews, yes, but more particular. He is telling lost people to produce works, to bear fruits that are in keeping with repentance. He just told lost people to repent and bear fruit from it. Does everybody see that repentance and bearing fruit are two separate things? Mine's got to be changed before you start acting differently. Does everybody see that? Does everybody see that it's possible for lost people to do this? Notice that John doesn't say, I know you can't do this because you're spiritually dead in your sins and trespasses, but you might want to think about this. He doesn't. And so notice what he happens here, because here's the problem, verse 9. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, and I love it because John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pierces the heart here. We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you, that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Does everybody realize what he's saying here? Let's read it one more time. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Now why would they say that? This is their excuse. We don't need to respond to what you're telling me. Do you know who I'm descended from? Do you know that just because he knew the Lord and you could trace it down, I'm good with God because of who I'm related to. Is that true? 
Are you sure? Is there not anything in you that wants that to be true? Is that how God deals with these things? That's where these guys were. It matters what... You know? What is it? Uh, uh, What's the the website where you can get your family tree? What is that? Ancestry. Ancestry Ancestry.com. 23 is where you send in your blood. Come on, y'all. Hopefully nobody in this room is sending their blood into people on the internet that you don't know. Yeah, this sounds like a good idea. No, it doesn't. It's not a good idea. Oh, is that what it is? Is it just saliva? That's all you send in saliva. There's always one. Trace back my family tree. That's how you know I'm accepted. Well, trace back who I know. That's how you know that I'm good. Well, John, don't you see I'm a Pharisee? I got a high-ranking position here. I mean, people look to me for spiritual guidance. Can't be anybody better than me. It makes me think of when Jesus paints a picture of the two guys who go up to the temple to pray. Everybody remember the Pharisees' prayer? God, thank you so much I'm not like this guy. Can you imagine if you prayed that? God, I'm so thankful I'm not like Terry Colwalk. Praise God. (laughs) Have you seen this guy? I'm not him. I'm righteous. Pray twice a day. I go ahead and pass over the horoscope. I don't involve myself in all that stuff. Dear Abby, I got to read that though. I don't go down to those bookstores like those other people do. I make sure that all my movies don't ever get beyond R. God, these are the reasons why. Right? Deeper in the alphabet you go, the worse it is, right? PG, R, exactly. I mean, this is the reason, God, why you should look favorable at me. What does the guy say that's next to him? He doesn't even look to heaven. Doesn't even look up. Which is probably a big reason why we all pray like this, right? Looking down. Because nobody says that you have to, we just do it. It says that he beats his breast. The anguish that is boiling in him right now reaches the point of where this is the proper response. And it's not, I just scored a touchdown, look at me thing. It's probably, I don't even understand why I'm able to come to you. Or it might be this, I know what's in here because the words out of his mouth are have mercy on me I'm a sinner I'm a sinner let me ask you this is that a word that we use with people when we talk about Jesus not that he's a sinner do we talk to people about the fact that they are sinners do we bring that up Because you don't have a problem finding self-righteous people. You don't have a problem finding people that will always give you a reason 
as to why they don't need Jesus. We're not running short in that category in this world. But let me tell you this, and we're wrapping it up now because of where time is. So I got about three pages into the notes. These will be the same thing for next week. But they need somebody to come in and to take these blinders and to push them to the side so that they can see themselves for who they really are. Now, here's the problem. You may have mentally said, well, he's talking about me. He's talking about me. I need to go in there and share the gospel and remove the blinders. Pause. Can you do that? Let me show you something. 2 Corinthians 4. Turn there real quick. Paul says, therefore, verse 1, since we have this ministry as we received mercy, and notice these are reflecting on the mercy of God towards him, and even putting him in ministry to serve him in this way. Look what it says. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adultery of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now watch this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case, now watch this, the God of this world. Who's the God of this world? Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I don't know if you know this, but every single person in this room right now is a John the Baptist. And here's the reason why. You and I know the truth. We know it. Do you know it? If you had to share the gospel with somebody, could you? Could you talk to them about how there is a God who has created all things? That He's a righteous and good and loving God. And that our role in this whole mix was sinning against him. He had told us not to do something. We said, I'm not listening to you. I want to do what I want to do. You want to talk about the Bible needs to be relevant. That's relevant right there. Us doing what we should not do. That's everyday relevance. And so because we cannot regain the right standing with God, and all we do is sin and sin and sin and sin, God needed to step in and take care of this problem. And by doing so, He offers it freely to you, but at great personal cost. That's grace. Somebody's got to pay somewhere. And it was God paying a lot. And He paid it. He gave the highest cost so that it could be offered free to everyone else. There is no payment on your behalf. And so what happens is, because we need to start bringing this up because I'm finding it starting to get missing, not here, but in a lot of presentations. What happened was the cross. Guys, let's bring the screen up. You mind to do that real quick, PJ? The cross. An instrument of execution. Notice we don't have necklaces with electric chairs on them or syringes. 
And I'm not trying to make fun, but I'm saying we have a cross. And the reason is, is because we understand it means something. It is a death tool. It is an instrument where you nail somebody through the wrist there and you position their feet just right so that you can get both feet at the same time with one well. I mean, we want to be frugal in this, don't we? We don't want to waste any nails. So that the person actually has to extract energy to pull themselves up just to breathe because they are slowly suffocating to death internally. Not to mention a crown of thorns on the head. Not to mention the lashes across the back. Not to mention the bruises from the guards who mocked him and danced around him and started beating him in the head with a reed. Because that's what sin looks like. Because that's the picture. And so what happens, we'll draw this back around to our understanding and communion. This took place so it didn't have to with you and I. Because even if we were on that cross, we could not pay for our sins perfectly. Why? Because we have more than one. One sin costs one life. The wages of sin is? We all know this. You see what I'm saying? Now that's the tragedy out of it, but what is the good news? He has made it possible for you to have a relationship with the Creator of all things. Why? Because He paid everything that needed to be paid by you. He took it on Himself. Tell them about grace. If you see some Pharisees and Sadducees out there, tell them, you brood of vipers. Because that'll at least get the conversation going. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Do you not realize that if you reject the free, get this, free offer of salvation that Jesus paid for, the lake of, the fi the lake of fire is the only suitable place for you to be. Why? Because you don't have life. It's not that you cease to exist. But the lake of fire is the only suitable place for people who are lifeless. Jesus Christ came to give life and life what? See, man, we know all this stuff. We know it. We know it. And I will go ahead and tell you this. John is preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. You and I wouldn't witness to people like that. And we're going to explain that more next week. But here's what I do know. His job to announce the Savior isn't much different from ours. His had an audience, the Jews. He had a particular message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The calling was for people to change their minds about it and to get ready because here he comes. Our message is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We're still sent, are we not? Are you convinced that's true? Are you convinced that every single person on the face of the earth needs to hear this good news? Are you convinced? Are we doing it? That's the question. Notice that's the linchpin in the whole process. Are we doing it? We know it's true. We know it's true. We know every person needs to hear it. We know that Jesus died for every person. Are we doing it? Doesn't take much. 
Let me give you an interesting introduction. We had a we had a we were at, staying in this hotel at Colorado. And there was this young lady at the desk that I could tell probably had some baggage. We discussed it a little bit. And as I was checking out, and for all of you in the disaster relief class, I did not look at her and say, has anybody ever taken a Bible and shown you how you can know for sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die? I didn't do that. And here's the reason why. It didn't seem to be the right approach. But here's what I did. Because I knew she had some baggage, I asked her a simple question. How can I pray for you? You would have thought I lunged over the desk and smacked her in the nose. She went. She said, well, I, I, I never had anybody ask me that before. I said, well, that's okay. I like to pray for people. And I'm curious how I can pray for you. She said, I'm not really religious. I said, that's great because I'm not either. That really got her attention. She goes, what do you mean? I said, well, religion tells you what you have to do in order for God to accept you. But a relationship with Jesus Christ lets you know that you're already accepted because of what he did. And she sat there for a second, and I saw a little light bulb go on. She goes, I get that. I said, so how can I pray for you? What is pressing in your life? She told me something pretty deeply personal that she was struggling with. And the weight that I sensed was on her made a whole lot of sense at that moment. I told her, I said, I will pray for you. I bought a bottle of water from her, and I gave her, and it's that simple track. So do me a favor, read that later when you get off work. Because I'm not there to push her employer aside. I'm not there to disrespect her job situation. I'm not there to embarrass her in front of her coworkers or anything like that. But here's the great thing. Did she get saved? I don't know. And you know what? It's not up to me whether it happened or not. What I know is that she has the good news in her hand and she can read it anytime that she wants to. It is always there even though I couldn't be. Those opportunities are out there, folks. They're everywhere. And I promise you this, and it's, and it's no different from us, let's be honest. You have kids, raise your hand. There you go. Did you ever walk in one day and look at your spouse and go, I just want an obedient child? Every single person in here did, didn't you? And those of you who don't have kids yet, you're going to say it. You know what I love about God? He so desires the obedient child, but He never expresses it in exasperation like that. Because He knows that He wants us to be obedient because it is the best possible thing we could ever do with our life. See, that's the beauty of grace. He never looks at the Trinity. He never looks at the Spirit. Why can't they just obey? He never does that. He comes along like a loving shepherd and encourages us to get going in the right direction. It's a good Father. If you have opportunities, use them. I promise you they were divinely set up so that you could be his obedient child. Let's pray.
Father, the gospel message is so important. We all know it. We all need to share it. That's something we know to be true. So, Father, help us to live according to our convictions about what is true. Give us strength. Give us courage. Open our eyes to see. Give us open doors. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.